I enjoy reading. I like to cook. I love my time in the kitchen. Hey, podcast listener. You're listening to the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast, the weekly podcast where we discuss all the issues that cyclists talk about. Whether you're out training, commuting, or just riding around, sit down and listen in, because we're about to begin. I got something to say, man. Yo-ho! Welcome to episode 95 of the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast, where we believe that only a semi-pro cyclist rides for love and not money. If you stick around to the end, I'll fill you in on the quote from the top of the show and let you know who's talking about reading and cooking. Hey there, semi-pros. My name is Damien Roos. I'm the founder of Semi-Pro Cycling, home of the Semi-Pro Cyclist. And you can find this episode at semiprocycling.com forward slash truth. And... A very quick review to get us underway today. A cut above five stars by PDX Ruler from the United States. First podcast rating review I have ever written. Semi-Pro Cycling is far and away the best cycling source I have found that discusses the day-to-day issues of cyclists from commuters to pros or semi-pros. Very well done. Unpretentious with a focus on people who like to ride race but also have lives with responsibilities. Keep up the great work and I look forward to more insights for those of us chronologically challenged cyclists. Thank you very much PDX Ruler for taking the time out to write that review. I really do appreciate it and you are exactly right. The semi-pro is not necessarily the hardcore guy or gal that is out there smashing it full time. It's people that have other things in their life but cycling is still kind of number one. And definitely a reminder to you that if you do like the show, I would love a review on iTunes or Stitcher because five stars makes me think that... Thank you very much. Now, two great articles that I came across this week. The first one, of course, is a study. Anaerobic power in road cyclists is improved after 10 weeks of whole body vibration training. I don't know about you, but this makes me think about those old school 50s machines where you sit on them and it's just shaking your ass because I don't really have an understanding of modern day vibration technology or what they're calling whole body vibration training and they are stating here that it has previously improved muscle power in various athletic groups requiring explosive muscle contractions maybe that's why it hasn't branched over into cycling just yet but i guess this is the bridge so the study was set up to help evaluate the benefit of including wbv whole body vibration as a training adjunct for improving aerobic and anaerobic cycling performance. Road cyclists were chosen for this. They performed three weekly 10-minute sessions of WBV on synchronous vertical plates at 30 hertz while standing in a static posture. As well as this group of nine, there was a control group of eight that received no WBV training before or after the 10-week intervention period, lean body mass, cycling aerobic peak power, 4 millimole lactate concentration, VO2 peak, Wingate anaerobic peak, and mean power output were determined for both of these groups. So the WBV group successfully completed all WBV sessions but reported a significant decrease in weekly cycling training time. The average is here around 9.4 hours to around 6.7 hours per week. So that resulted in a 6% decrease in VO2 peak and a 4% decrease in 4 millimole lactate concentration. 
the control group were able to maintain their cycling volume, however. So all the measured variables were maintained. Despite this evidence, the detraining in the WBV group, the Wingate peak power increased by 6% and the Wingate mean power increased by 2% from pre-intervention to post-intervention, respectively, and without any change in lean body mass. So the conclusion that this study comes up with is WBV training is an attractive training supplement for improving anaerobic power without increasing muscle mass in road cyclists. Maybe there was a significant finding in this study, but for me, the study overall is really vague and the WBV group decreased their training volume, which of course is going to decrease your potential post-study numbers. So it was fascinating that the Wingate numbers improved, but really, can you attribute this to whole body vibration? I'm not entirely convinced with this and okay, there may be some positive findings here, but really you've got to narrow down on something that is specific to training cyclists. Just doing a Wingate test is not going to be the best way to do this because their training wasn't regulated. And so you just have to hone this down to find answers, but right now still not convinced. Okay, so article two, interval training for higher MLSS and VO2 max. It's an article that's on webtrainer.com, the online home of coach Andre Van Diemen, He is the coach for a few notables in Garmin Sharp, and I'm guessing he was Garmin Sharp's team coach a few years ago because this article relates to a couple of years ago and Garmin Sharp. It is an interesting look on that side, on the pro side of training, but more importantly, it's a look at how Andre Van Diemen analyzes the efforts that his athletes do. And he talks about, firstly, a December training camp where he had them develop strength and coordination in addition to endurance base, and then talking about a January training camp where he worked further on developing stamina strength and developing the sprint and time trial skills. He talks about wanting to train the maximum lactate steady state, MLSS, which is around the four millimoles per liter mark of lactate, and that equates to roughly your threshold. But he describes two workouts with actual files. Firstly, three by five minute efforts with a 10 minute rest in between efforts. And the interesting part here is the analysis of heart rate. And the threshold heart rate of the rider in the example is about 184 beats per minute. And he dissects the interval heart rates into two categories. HF1, which is the average heart rate measured over five minutes. And HF2, the average heart rate measured over the last minute of the five-minute period. I believe he does this because average heart rate may not tell the entire story, but this is a good way to dig a little bit deeper. When I'm personally looking at an athlete's file, I do a quick eyeball of the heart rate trend over the intervals done. And if you can see a rising heart rate over a steady power or speed outputs, then you know the athlete is not adapting well and is not ready to move on. And in this case, it looks like the adaption is taking place. But when you start digging in, you start to see a little more. Once I've done this eyeball, I then take a more accurate look at the numbers, starting out with the training and racing with the power meter optimal interval guidelines, which in the case of a five-minute effort is you take the average power from the third interval, and if that drops between 5 and 7% after that interval, then you know that 
you're not adapting and you need to stop and come back at it another day. It is unfortunate here because it just can't be used because there's only an example of three efforts here. But if we do take the average watts from the first effort, then you can see that there is no problems when it comes to the power output. It doesn't drop 5 to 7% over the three intervals. So this is where eyeballing it and looking at power actually hasn't told a story of not being able to adapt. Heart rate also has a place here, though, because... Andre Van Diemen's second heart rate measure captures the heart rate stress at the end of the effort when the effort starts to really tax the system. And what's interesting in the example is how the HF2 is lower than the average heart rate in the first interval, but much higher in interval 2, but then drops slightly in interval 3. So to me, this shows an adaption is occurring, but the rider needs more time at that level because this number should really flatten out or decrease before more stress is added. The second set of intervals are three sets of 10 reps of under-overs at 40 seconds on and 20 seconds off with 10 minutes recovery between these 10 reps. And he's done the same thing, except there isn't HF 1 and 2. There is just HF, which is the average heart rate over the 40 seconds, and then the average wattage over the 40 seconds. And Power is in no danger here of dropping below the training and racing with a power meter guide, which for short stuff like 40 seconds is a drop of 12 to 15% over the efforts. And if you look at heart rate, you think that the average heart rate is telling another story, but you have to dig a bit deeper again to kind of understand what's going on here. Because the heart rate itself rises from 170 to 180 over one set, which shows that the recovery in the 10 seconds is incomplete because the heart rate continuously increases over this time. And this is where if you dig deeper though, you'll see that an increase kind of stops around the fifth interval. And the heart rate barely continues going from 178 to 180 for the second part of this set. So the rider was able to adapt to the rest periods once they got going and were halfway through the set. And understanding this rather than just looking at a 10-beat change from start to finish, gives you a better indication of the adaption that's actually happening. And so it means that for this rider, you could actually start adding more load on top of this the next time they do this session. So either by adding intervals or adding the length to the intervals, or maybe even changing the recovery period. So both of these examples really show how diving into the numbers a little more can show you the real picture of what's actually happening when you are out training and when you come back and do your analysis and if you should move on or continue where you are because your body isn't ready yet. Okay, the nuts and bolts this week, finding the truth in cycling, how do you know what you know? It's a pretty interesting topic for me. It kind of deviates from cycling proper, so we're not talking tactics or strategy here, but I think it's really fundamental how you get the information that you get for endurance sport, for any part of cycling, including products, not just training. So the nuts and bolts this week are based on a presentation called Finding the Truth in Endurance Sport by Jason Boynton, and it's a really good look at all the different elements and places that you can get information from and how you come to your own conclusions. So it's really about forming your own strategy of how you pick up this information. A kind of interesting place to start with this is do we have it all right, right now? Do we 
do things that we will find out in 5, 10, 50 years' time that we're doing totally wrong. And absolutely, I would have to say yes, yes, yes. There are going to be things that we're going to be laughing about in 5 or 10 years' time that we're doing right now. Some things are going to be helping our performance, but there's definitely going to be things that are detrimental to our performance. So the question we're really asking is how do we know what we know about cycling and how do we know what we know about cycling is true? How about your cycling-specific knowledge? Think about every single element of cycling, from the shoes you wear to the gels you eat, from the training you do to anything else that you've done or bought in the name of increased performance. Where do you find out about it? Magazines, websites, journals, wherever it is. How do you know that it will increase your performance? It's really all about questioning every single thing you do and every single purchase that you make. A simple decision-making model starts with a claim, then evaluating that claim and deciding whether it's true false or somewhere in between is how we start to filter the information that comes into our world. And evaluations of this information can take the form of critical thinking, which is a systematic thinking with the objective of analysis and evaluation of an issue in order to form a judgment. Another way we can do this is skepticism, and skepticism is the process of applying reason and critical thinking to determine validity. It's the process of finding a supported conclusion, not the justification of a preconceived conclusion. And the final one that I'll present to you is applied science, a discipline of science that applies existing scientific knowledge to develop more practical applications such as technology or inventions. And once the evaluation is made, a true evaluation will lead to action while false or intermediate evaluation will most likely lead to no action. Cycling itself has moved forward quite rapidly over the last 10-15 years and not only performance has improved, but here's a little side note on the role of technology in cycling because I recently came across a TED talk given by David Epstein, author of The Sports Gene, asking if athletes are really getting better, faster and stronger. This section specifically talks about cycling. Throughout sports, technology has changed the face of performance. In 1972, Eddie Merckx set the record for the longest distance cycled in one hour at 30 miles, 3,774 feet. Now, that record improved and improved as bicycles improved and became more aerodynamic, all the way until 1996, when it was set at 35 miles, 1,531 feet, nearly five miles farther than Eddie Merckx cycled in 1972. But then in 2000, the International Cycling Union decreed that anyone who wanted to hold that record had to do so with essentially the same equipment that Eddie Merckx used in 1972. Where does the record stand today? 30 miles, 4,657 feet. A grand total of 883 feet farther than Eddie Merckx cycled more than four decades ago. Essentially, the entire improvement in this record was due to technology. It's pretty funny here that he talks about what's happening right now and the UCI has just changed these archaic rules regarding the hour record, which for me is exciting, but it does say a lot about technology and its role in sport. 
It also says a lot about the genius of Graham Obrey, but that definitely is a topic for another show because because what he did wasn't actually so scientific in the defined sense. But that's only one example. There are many examples that are science-based and have moved cycling forward. Most areas in cycling have been touched by cycling in the past 15, 20 years, from training stress models to aerodynamics and nutrition to testing. I was listening again to John Cobb just the other day. He said in the early 90s he was going into wind tunnels to assess Euro helmets to help with Greg LeMond, and they had no idea what they were doing. They would just take some clay and they would carve things around the helmet and just make different shapes and just see what would happen. But they believe, or he believes, he was one of the first ones to actually go and do this. So it has come a long way when you see amateur athletes actually going into wind tunnels and getting testing done. That's the evolution that's happened over the last 20 years in cycling technology, but it's not to say that there's still not going to be claims and decisions that we make in cycling that are probably downright silly when you look at them in a few years' time, and definitely we don't have all the answers about these yet, whether they work or whether they don't work, but I'm sure some of these things that we're doing today will be exposed in many years to come, like I just mentioned. But there are question marks hanging over a lot of products and methods ranging from inconclusive to mystery to just plain unknown. So now I've placed doubt on about 60% of your training and about 80% of your performance products. I want to give you five levels of knowing, starting with the least reliable and moving through to the most reliable. And number five is tenacity. It can be summed up like this. It's the lowest form of knowing. It's only knowing because you've always known. It's not being based on anything, but just that's the way it is. There is no applied critical thinking. There is no systematic thinking at all in any of this. And an example is, I always do base miles in the off-season because everyone does base miles in the off-season. It's as simple as that, and I'm sure you have a few of these ticking around because I definitely know I do. We move to four, and intuition, a belief from the gut not supported by objective evidence and no discussion, no reasoning, just feeling. And I'm definitely guilty of this. I'm definitely guilty of straight away, yes, my gut says this, I'm going to go with this. And it's not for every decision I make, but there are certain times when I know that I'm doing this. It's because when I move into that area of my cycling, then I don't have all the answers to kind of get to or change my opinion on what I'm thinking about when it comes to that specific area of cycling, whatever it is. I don't have a specific example here for you, but an example just to give you an idea is I feel three-minute intervals are better than five-minute intervals, and that is pretty much based on nothing. There's nothing that you're drawing on there. There may be some experience in there or something that you read a long time ago, but there's nothing concrete that you can point to that says, this is why I believe three-minute intervals are better than five-minute intervals. The third type here is authority, acquiring knowledge from an authority without questioning, doubt, or skepticism. And there can be a lot said about listening to an authority. It can definitely save you time. They can definitely filter information out for you. If you trust them, then they're often right in what they're saying. Hopefully, they base their beliefs on empirical evidence and getting knowledge from other authorities or experts in the field. So they become a panel of experts if you have people talking to each other all the time. And definitely, it is a time saver. It doesn't come without its risks, though, because the disadvantages are that they can be wrong. 
they can be undeserving and given to those that may not deserve it. So people that put themselves on a pedestal and don't actually deserve it. The examples here are anyone from coaches or cycling training figures, other athletes, publications, even forums, and yes, podcast hosts. So my advice here is be skeptical. Ask how do they know what they know? How does any information that they get to you get to them? Number two, reasoning. Applying logic to come to a conclusion about reality. And it does follow a pretty basic format where number one is the premise. Identical twins have different IQ scores. Number two, premise, identical twins inherit the same genes. Number three, your conclusion, your reasoned conclusion. So environment must play some part in determining IQ. That's not a cycling-related example, but it is a pretty clear example of taking two things and then making a clear decision from those two things, which there is some basis there, and it does get a little bit trickier as things get more technical, but you can apply this to a whole bunch of areas to cycling that haven't been studied yet. The advantages of looking at things this way is where there's a lack of empirical evidence, it may provide an answer that is valid enough for the question of the problem. This is something that I do use a lot as a coach because Part of coaching is the art of coaching and the art is generally filling knowledge gaps in training and performance, not only to the studies and performance, but to the link and the response of the athlete. So filling those gaps is kind of where I have to make reasoned decisions on all of the information that I have available and then come up with a conclusion and then try and get the best result from that. The disadvantages here, flawed premise lead to flawed conclusions. So you can be biased in your premise in the first place that can lead to something that you want rather than actual truth. And definitely this can continue. So you just can build an argument for each side quite easily. So you can go back and forth depending on where your biases lie. The number one way of knowing that I've got down here based on this presentation is the scientific method. And while it's not perfect, It definitely is the best way that we have of systematically going through information and trying to determine exactly what is real and what is not. What is correlation, causation, breaking down all of these elements and actually getting to the truth. So the highest form of obtaining knowledge, it's not always true, but it is the closest to being true. The scientific method is all about taking logical steps to build evidence that supports or disputes an idea. And like I said, it's not perfect and it can be quite complex at each step. So it's something that you have to learn over time. But the process itself starts with a question. It's based on previous research or an anecdote. And the interesting thing when I started studying science for the first time was understanding that It takes things that you may take for granted or have gone through any one of these other steps of knowing and it tries to confirm those. So very basic research has to be done to test assumptions that you may believe 100% but you actually have to go through this process in order to validate them properly. 
So you move on then to doing your background research, and this is where you collect as much information as possible around all of the studies that have been done in this area, around the issue, anything that's related to it, so you can be in the right place when you decide where your focus is going to be. And that focus is done in the form of a hypothesis, an educated guess that is testable and measurable and based on what is seen in research. And so this is what you're trying to prove wrong or right, and this will give you the answer. The meat and potatoes of the scientific method really, for me, is testing the hypothesis with experimentation. And there's a whole bunch of things that it would really help if you would understand these when you are reading through any scientific literature, because you can be misled in this process if you don't understand certain parts of scientific literature. And I'm just going to spell them out here, but if you do want to go into a bit deeper, but definitely the presentation does dive a little bit deeper into it. It's all about, firstly, control, repeatability, blind testing, unrepresentative samples, sample size too small, conflict of interest. So there's there's some issues there and then some things that you really should look out for that a scientific study should have to be a valid test. Once that's done, you move to analyze the data. And the stats here are the answer to find if the hypothesis is true and you were looking for a significant answer then you want to draw a conclusion from this the conclusion is anything from where can the findings be used what else could be further studied how is this going to be applied into real life it's very common to come across studies that just say more study needed and it's more about you taking that or the, any little other bits of information that you can get out of the study and applying that rather than just saying, okay, I can't use this. But looking at the conclusion, finding out exactly what you can use in your own training or writing. The final one is communicating your results. And this is very important because it's another layer before it gets to you, before you read it. So a peer-reviewed journal is going to check that all of these steps were done properly, that it's a valid experiment, and the results are justified. Also can be presented at a conference, which is another way of doing a peer review and holding it up for criticism in public so that it can be shot down if there's anything dodgy within the actual study or it can be held up because it is legitimate. So this is definitely, once the paper is released to the wild, it's fair game for anyone to criticize the findings or methods. But drawing conclusions for any studies done for you as an individual is probably the most important element here, like I kind of just touched on when there is a conclusion being drawn. So comparing means of groups versus individual results and looking at responders versus non-responders, there is a whole bunch of things that you need to really keep an eye out here for though. But something I do want to address is the pseudoscience or the experiments of one that I kind of talk about. And I talk a lot about this because we are forced to draw conclusions in our own training on limited information that doesn't fall within the structure of a strict scientific method. And I still see room to do this because it's the best best way for you to make a decision on whether something you're doing is good for your own training in your situation when you don't have all of the information sources to draw from. And while it's hard to draw conclusions for across a broad range of scenarios, this approach can help you make decisions about products and methods that relate directly to you even if there is a placebo effect. Before I kind of move on here, there's a couple of other points that are brought up here. One of the biggies is marketing and marketing and cycling is huge because it's a pretty big industry and a product may or may not work but marketing is not really concerned with whether it works or not 
It's more concerned with selling you something. So definitely here, you have to be skeptical of all marketing claims made. And how do you get around this? You have to do your own research. And there's a lot of spin floating around. So you need to look at a variety of sources before you go making any purchases. It really comes down to you and checking these out. There is no problem with making a purchase on looks alone, but if you are wanting to get a performance increase out of a product, then definitely researching and looking a bit further afield is going to help you make the decision. Okay, there is a lot of stuff in this presentation that I haven't covered, and if you want to find out more about this topic, definitely start with the YouTube clip, which I'll link to at semiprocycling.com forward slash truth. But I did not raise these points to overwhelm you. I want to make you aware of the rigors a study must go through versus all the other ways of attaining knowledge. So to wrap it up here, I'm going to go through some tips on how to move forward with this new knowledge and how to be a critical athlete. And like I said, cycling training is still part art, still part science. So not all the answers are out there. Reasoning, intuition, and experience are what fill the gaps, and cycling knowledge will increase in time to reduce these gaps. And the guidelines for being a critical athlete, number one, know where you got your knowledge and the quality of that knowledge. That's pretty straightforward. Just keep digging until you can find a source that is reliable. Number two, admit to yourself that some knowledge you have is wrong. Absolutely, we have a bit of pride wrapped up in this. We all think we know certain things when maybe we don't have any idea as to exactly what the implications of doing a certain type of training at a certain time or whatever. But the first step, in getting past this is admitting to yourself that you could potentially be wrong and keeping your mind open about this. And it kind of moves into number three here. Do not have any cherished beliefs. Be willing to change in the face of better evidence. And this really holds true if you've been doing things for a long time, something presents it to you and you get rid of it before you even consider it. The first stage really being open to it. The second is being open to considering getting it into your training if you can validate it to yourself through this process. Number four, know when to say, I don't know. Nobody knows everything. So you have to at some point admit that you don't know. And I've done this with my athletes. Someone will ask me a question and I won't know. So I will say, okay, I don't know that, but I will look into it. I will go to my sources. I will look based on my knowledge of cycling and come up with an answer for you. And the fifth one is ask questions. Ask questions of everybody, coaches, other athletes, marketers, people in the shops, anybody that's trying to sell you something, anybody that's offering information. It's good to take advice from lots of people, but be careful with the advice that you do use and try and get down to the real basis of where that information is coming from. So for you, The question to ask is, where are the gaps in your knowledge? And for me, I sat down and asked this question, and in an attempt to help you make better decisions on your performance needs, I'm launching a monthly newsletter called the Cycling Innovation Report. I have kind of positioned it primarily for coaches because coaches are the ones with so much on their mind that it's very hard to absorb any new information. But if you're a cyclist, a self-coach cyclist, and you're interested in using innovation to get results in your cycling, this report is going to cover the top five to ten 
performing research papers over a monthly period and also the top five to ten highest performing new performance products that come out in a month. And also a big part of this is the actionable advice that for each study that I'm going to come up with, but I'm not going to be basing this on what I truly believe. I'm just going to try and present options and ways that you could adapt this into your real-world training and racing situations so you can make the assessment based on the information that I supply. So to get this rolling, I've got a special semi-pro cycling deal for the launch, and I'm going to do it at $19 a month. That's a really solid deal. It's going to go up to $29 a month once I've got 10 people on board because if I don't get 10 people on board, then I can't justify spending the time to put this together. So for any semi-pro cycling listeners, the offer is $19. The first report is due in mid-June. So to get you to that mid-June period, I've got a link on the page at semiprocycling.com forward slash truth. And it will go directly to Wheelhouse and it will give you immediate access to the training modules that I've put together for Wheelhouse. You can work on those before you actually get the newsletter. All right, the tech hacks and products section. This week, ID bracelets, not really a performance bracelet, but there is a lot of options floating around at the moment. So I thought I'd raise it. Do you own one? Are you interested in own one? Is it something that you see valuable? Silicon versus nylon, custom colors. There are certainly lots of different options, affiliations and sponsorships that that these companies have. What do you think of them? I'm really interested to know the three companies that I came across. The first one, Road ID, 30 bucks it'll set you back. Yikes ID, $16 it will set you back. And Sports Tag ID, $31. So can you justify that price? Is that the price of saving your life when you're out on a solo ride and something happens? I don't know, but I think... It's an interesting trend, and I'm interested to know what you think of them. Now, that quote from the top of the show, it's Ted King, Canada's U.S. domestic extraordinaire. He has a really big following off the bike, and for good reason. He is an absolute champ. I'm a big fan of Ted King. He really likes to get amongst it. He has some pretty interesting projects on the side going. And Ted was kind enough to send in his pick with the contents of his pockets before he went out on a ride. This is part of the Ride Essentials series on the Semi-Pro Cycling Facebook page and my personal Instagram account, which you can find me at Damien Roos if you go hunting for it. But Ted, good luck this year in the tour. I hope it is much better than last year's. And I know that most of America, if not the world, is rooting for you. And that's it. So you have been listening to the Semi-Pro Cycling Performance Podcast. Remember to head over to semiprocycling.com forward slash truth to get any links that have been used in this week's episode and to get the special deal on the Cycling Innovation Report. But till next week, get on your bike and enjoy the pain cave or the hurt box, whichever one you're into. (laughs) 